Ok, parfait. I think that the image we give of science is a brittle one. It's not tough, it's not robust, it's not resilient, and it allows people to snap it if they want to. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Today, we have Tom McLeish with us. He is a professor of natural philosophy in the Department of Physics at the University of York in England. He works on soft matter and biological physics in many interdisciplinary projects with chemists, engineers, biologists, you name it. He studies how properties of materials emerge from the underlying molecular structures. He's won many prizes, too many to name here. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society. And among the many other things, the amazing breadth of his work has led him to recently write a book entitled The Poetry and Music of Science. And that's why we feel extremely fortunate to talk to you today. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much, Martin and Itai. It's great to be with you. Welcome, yes. Before we get into our discussion, let me quote a few sentences from your book. In the book you say, for example, there is almost total silence within the educational formation of scientists on the topic of imagination. And there may not be a method for this most vital of all scientific processes, but there are accounts, practices, and a communal experience that ought to be more widely and openly shared. And in spite of the personal knowledge that the creative first step is an essential or is as essential in natural philosophy as in art, and recognized as such from Aristotle to Einstein, there is still a false story circulating that imagination is not a strong requirement for the scientist. I mean, I picked that up from several places. I mean, I remember reading Karl Popper, actually when I was quite young, but I do remember thinking, well, this sounds very fine and formal, but as I gained experience of doing science, actually muddling on through in the way we do, trying to find the right questions, spending more time, for example, uh, working out exactly what the right questions are than trying to work out the answers. And of course, that's a work of imagination and creativity. And if one creates and fashions a good question in the same way one sort of models a poem or a, a picture. And so I wish people talked about that more. And you can look hard in Popper. I mean, you have to look really hard. It's on about page five of uh, Conjectures and Refutations, and where he actually admits, okay, I have nothing to say about the creation of hypotheses. This is all about testing them. But actually, the creation of hypotheses is at least half of the full method of science. Yeah, and it is what makes science so much fun to a large extent. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, that is the fun mm. bit. And Tom, when you say that, and we absolutely agree, that generating the hypotheses is at least half of the story, I think a, a major part of your book deals with the sort of tension between the two sides of science and it may be just as big of a tension as there is between the humanities and the the scientists as was famously captured by cp snow and the mm. two cultures and so i i want to read to you also a quote this is a quote that you yourself quote by the great nobel prize winning physicist leo asaki where we can't help but read this and think of day science and night science but i want to hear your discussion about sure. it so what leo writes is science too 
has dual characteristics. It has a logical, objective, cool, and rational or rigorous face. The aspect of the finished product that appears in manuals and is presented to the public in conventions and conferences. The other face is fantastic, subjective, individualistic, intuitive, and lively, and reflects the process by which the new is created. Scientists can use their imagination to grope forward in a desperate struggle of trial and error, seeking out the secrets of the universe. If by chance they find a solution and their efforts are rewarded, then they can be truly happy. That rarely happens. This is the creative process, which is the essence of science. I love that quote, and I'm so glad he said that. It's honest. <laughs> it's just, well, I know it was quite late on in the project. My reading brought me to that, I think, a Nobel Prize address or sort of reflection on his work. And I adored that honesty. And I've since found that that resonance, it turns out, has a history. So there is a voice, although I set off thinking, well, no one's ever talked to me about this. And I asked myself, you know, when I was a scientist, as it were, in formation, as a junior postdoc, or even as a research student, particularly as a PhD student, did anyone ever talk to us about the lifestyle or the life work practices which will enable us to have the better ideas, better creative ideas, the question forming imaginative ideas? And, uh, and the answer was, of course, no. And can I read the sort of reflection piece to that Izaki quote? Absolutely. Um, oh, from yeah. someone who you wouldn't guess, you may have heard of him, but you might well have done. He's a writer called George MacDonald. Late 19th century, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien would both have pointed to George MacDonald as their inspiration for okay. the fantasy writing they achieved. Mm. So he's a really important background figure and he imagines that Thomas Spratt speaks first and Spratt says, but the facts of nature are to be discovered only by observation and experiment. And mm -hmm. MacDonald replies, true, but how does the scientist come to think of their experiments? Does observation reach to the non-present, the possible, the yet unconceived, even if it showed you the experiments which ought to be made? Will observation reveal to, you, reveal to you the experiments which might be made? And who can tell of which kind is the one that carries in its bosom the secret of the law you seek? We yield you your facts, the laws we claim for the prophetic imagination. But that was written in 1867. So there are voices which have picked this up and have been well aware of this through the past, but they come quietened and distant these days. So in the book, you also talk about cases where scientists and artists collaborate in some ways or where a scientist at the same time has a poetic way of expressing himself or vice versa. And the example that you just quoted was like that, right? You have a poet that talks about science and talks about right. science in a very knowledgeable way. Very gently held a period of conversations over a period of number of, of years with scientists of all kinds but also with poets, artists, fictional writers, dramatists, all sorts of... The people that are in public are called creative people, though in fact, of course, every, mm -hmm. every, everyone's creative, and science engineers, mathematicians too, and musicians. And, uh, you know, I'd start the discussion gently, but then at some point I'd ask them to tell me the story mm -hmm. of a recent piece of work that they were 
particularly pleased with with everyone but with the scientists in particular i had to explain i didn't want the you know i didn't want the seminar i didn't want the polished version or the journal article i wanted the real story and maybe it was this we'd had a beer or two by this point and it usually helped because it 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 opens the door a little bit to what we're normally quiet about we normally brush over our tracks and so i heard the stories of these people and of course the subject of the stories differed someone might have been trying to an artist might have been setting off to create a series of paintings to a particular end. A poet might have had a a vague idea of a poem about something or communicating a particular feeling or truth and so on. Or a scientist might have wanted to design a molecule to uh, self-assemble in jet fuel and and prevent explosions uh, or whatever. And, you know, I'd listen to the stories and it was the shape of the stories that matched onto each other so harmoniously so coherently yeah i'm not of course exactly there were very interesting many many differences so that you're right about that what i was wondering while reading the book is to what extent are these creative processes in the sciences and in the arts parallel and to what extent are they really the same types of processes i mean is it just a similarity or Or is there something deeper? I mean, are scientists really poets at heart? Right. Okay. It's important, I think, to stress that I'm not talking about identity here. So Mm -hmm. I don't know quite how to take your me at heart. So the same at heart. I could agree that they're the same at heart, but providing it doesn't mean that they're identical. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, art and science are not identical. But we are far more used to stressing their differences than stressing their similarities. So if I wanted to say a little bit more about the similarities in the structure of discovery, then I could give you a few more chapters, if you like, to the stories I kept hearing. So very briefly, they all start with a vision. I call it stages, one is vision, but of course it's a hazy vision. I mean, if the poet had a clear sight of the final poem, the job would be done. She would just write the poem down, right? If similarly, you know, if I had a clear idea of the rheological molecular theory for this particular strange viscoelastic physics, then hey, job done. I'd write the paper and have done. Nor do I see nothing. This is a kind of miraculous thing, because if we had no idea where we were going, we wouldn't get started either. So from somewhere, We have a coarse-grained, fuzzy, ill-focused idea of where we might end up. So I've told you about one example from my own work, which is creating this viscoelastic theory for for topologically non-trivial branch polymers and this strange polymer. It was a long way away, but I had some idea of what eventual theory might look like. And I remember an artist, I've written about this in the book, called called Ken Hay, who works at the University of, of Leeds, telling me about and the stories down there but he had an idea of these colored backgrounds to grainy photographs from the second world war he wished to bring into more depth and perspective and detail and emotional resonance but then the first attempts he made towards this vision weren't in the right direction and i said ken i remember thinking ken you know i could have changed a few words in the story you've just told me and it could have been my story of this polymer science project because we too see things vaguely as we want them to be but the first things we try in don't work but we have to experiment 
with where theoreticians all lab experiment, we still experiment. Um, we try things and they don't work. And then different emotions happen. We start off with a rather excited emotion, a desire and anticipation. And then the next set of emotions are, are very different because they're disappointment and frustration and sometimes worse. We don't get anywhere at all. And we try different things. And then sometimes there's a period of rest and incubation. And then, of course, we I'm sure you'll want us to talk about this This at some point. There is this moment called the aha moment or moment of inspiration or moment of visitation of the muse. And this is a, this is a complete mystery. Yeah. Absolutely. We definitely want to talk about the aha moment. One aha moment that you uh, very nicely captured in the book was your own aha moment when you talked about sitting in a, I think it was, you were in a seminar where the speaker was discussing allosteric change in proteins. And I think this was a a great case of kind of like the mind's eye thinking in a visual way and leading you to a discovery. And it was also in this chapter that you had this very interesting connection to Plato's extramissive vision. So I want to give you the opportunity to discuss this really fascinating story. Yes. Well, thank you for mentioning extramission, this um, ancient theory of vision, which, of course, I was very surprised. And when I first came across it, it seemed so obviously wrong. In other words, you know, that visual rays, a vision is, is, is a matter of rays being emitted from the eye not received into the eye but actually of course in the in the light of modern visual neuroscience um, literally where we have yeah literally in the light yeah <laughs> we do emit possibilities so our minds are full of bayesian priors all the time which we throw at the incoming so it's a meeting of incoming and outgoing image uh, if you like which is perception so i make this point that actually even what appears to be passive visual perception is actually a highly imaginative creative act um so similarly in discussing the sort of visual mode of creativity i like to tell my own personal story and yes it was a static picture of a protein which i think robin brinsmer from ucla was lecturing on and i started to see it dancing i started to see it moving now, the actual the actual picture wasn't moving but and it, my own impression of this thing started dancing and it may be because i think of brownian motion all the time so the the reason i love working in biological physics particularly is i think that if there's anything that physics can give to molecular biology which is only after all giving back to biology it's the gift of, uh, of, of of brownian motion that the botanist robert brown gave to us in physics in the first place and which is that at the nanoscale of course everything is in continuous seething random chaotic motion and this is a kind of wonderful thing and sort of paradoxical because out of this chaos comes order so i think it was because i'm always looking for the role of brownian motion in biology perhaps i I disconnected to my imagination i saw this thing working and then i saw how that i saw without doing any math although the math came later i saw and sort of felt in my gut how that boiling sea of chaos although it doesn't carry information by definition it could act as a carrier wave for information where its amplitude to to change and i think that was the beginning the nativity really of what's turned out to be now almost a 20-year research program actually into into protein allostry yeah so that i wanted to use that as an illustration this is a visual mode of imaginative ideas so one thing that you already mentioned and that features prominently in the book is the role of emotion in science and For example, there is a quote from your book again where you say, experimental data alone conveys nothing, but by induction, 
are given narrative form by the scientists. And scientists should not train themselves to adopt a disinterested attitude towards their work, for it is better to recognize and face the danger of biases. And I think there's two interesting components here. One is how emotion can drive scientific creativity. And the other one, of course, is that emotion always comes with a bias or causes biases. So yeah, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. I thought that one of the reasons I picked this up from my conversations, but there's also literature here that science, quote, should be unemotional, is that uh, is that emotion is connected with with preconception and with bias. You know, we wish, we desire something to be true, to which I think I would reply, well, we're human beings. This is these, these emotions drive us. It's like unconscious bias. It's fine to really want my theory to be true. I think I sometimes, there's somewhere else where I write, I write that scientific ideas are not born gazelle-like, ready to scamper off over the prairie, but they have a marsupial birth. You know, they're good for nothing. They're weak, they're half-formed. They need to be loved into fullness. I've experienced this many times. After you know, And Tom, when you talk about this emotional aspect and, you know, you're only human, and of course there's the other side that science has a kind of rational hypothesis testing, that to us sounds a lot like the dialogue or uh, the, the two sides of the scientific method that Jacob called mm. day science and night science. And you write it that the way creativity emerges is that it's a tension between the imaginative powers and the constraint of form. And I want to ask you a specific question about that, which is perhaps this duality is why we are quiet about the creative process. You know, maybe scientists don't like to reveal so much that there is so much imagination involved because they feel that that sort of would come at a cost of the objectiveness of the final results. There is a point when we're talking about our science, and there's a point where it comes to it being a matter of life and death, for example. So when we talk about climate change, we talk about, about the effectiveness of, of COVID vaccines. You know, We don't want people to get the idea that there's a vague hope or a desire on our part that these things might work, because by that stage, this has been rigorously tested but I don't think it necessarily does us any harm to point out the root there and the human openness and struggles. And I think that we could turn that to an advantage. That's exactly right, because, you know, it's as though we scientists convened and we had decided at some point, I don't know, I, I certainly wasn't there, but I imagine that we had decided, you know, we should portray to the public at large this image of science that is flawless. And so that way we can get their support and confidence. And, you know, if as a trade-off, the youngsters will think that science is not very creative because it's so infallible, then so be it. The problem is we're neither here nor there, I think, because there is this image that science is not creative. And so youngsters may not come. And also when the public gets a glimpse of science in process where the theories change or the new results falsify a previous thing, then uh, they lose confidence in science. So there's like a general misunderstanding of what science is in the public and no one is really gaining. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. In other words, we have nothing to lose by being more honest and everything to gain. Exactly. And I actually think it probably works the other way around. I think that the image we give of science is a brittle one. It's not tough. It's not robust. It's not resilient. And it allows people to snap it if they want to. 
to snap it. And also, of course, because there isn't a story, people love stories. I mean, narrative, because there is no story to tell about science that we do, that we just throw facts and statements and establish knowledge of them. Because there's no story. There's no story to engage with. What Michael Polanyi would call perhaps personal knowledge. There's no personal knowledge for them to gain by which they might see actually you know, I mean, I understand where these people are coming from now. If we opened up these stories a little more, then I think we'd have both buy into, we'd have more buy into science. We'd have a, a greater quiver, a palette of tools at our disposal, ways to engage with these conspiracy theories and doubts honestly and appreciate them for what they are. Science driven by doubt, nothing wrong in doubting. And it's really amazing because all of us who do science know of course how important that creative part is right and and how exciting it is so it's really bizarre that we don't communicate that so much yeah can i just pick up something you raised martin i think a couple of minutes ago about creativity and constraint sure sure because we didn't i wanted to pick up and run that a little bit because we were also had this discussion of what's similar and what's different between art and science mm -hmm. and of course some things are very there's obviously a difference in that in science What we are attempting to create is an image in some sense, a model, an image of the real world. There's a world out there. We sometimes believe we're in connect, connect, direct mental connection with the real world. I think it's it's with an image of the real world, a model we are. But nonetheless, that's our constraint. Obviously, in art, one, there is representational art, but there is um, art gives us freedom to go beyond our universe. You know, so that's the first. But then I'm saying, well, actually, there's a good bit of theoretical physics, which goes way beyond our universe, as far as we know, right? So we, we're very happy to create alternative universes in science as well. They're symbols on a page which represent other ideas, or perhaps a hierarchy of other ideas, that have to somehow harmonize and work, come to have a life all their own, and connect with the world in some way. And after a process of manipulation, one has entire freedom, of course. You know, we have immense freedom in what mathematical objects we throw at this page. And the poet has immense freedom in what words, phrases she, he puts on the page. This reminds me of the great Stravinsky quote that the more constraints one imposes, the more one frees oneself. So Stravinsky, he absolutely understood this notion of constraint not just being essential for creativity but actually liberating you yeah so to me it seems that the constraint that we think about when we think about poetry right that there has to be rhythm and rhyme to the words and maybe even a specific form of rhythm and a specific form of rhyme to me it seems that that is actually akin to for example the rules of mathematics, right? Like, you know, what happens if you add two numbers or like the meaning of the symbols and in what way you can put them legally on a page. But then as a scientist, on top of that or beyond that, you also have the constraint of the real world, which you talk about in your book, right? That whatever you're writing as a scientist should correspond to the constraints that the real world gives you. So how then should we think about this analogy or this similarity between poetry and science in terms of constraints. Right. Well, I think even poetry has its internal constraints that the poet chooses. And in a sense, the scientist also chooses, in terms of how his description of the world, the internal constraints like mathematical um, consistency. And I do think that the artistic object carries more of it. There's more weight of internal consistency than the scientist's 
creation because that has more external constraint. But it's a question of degree, not kind, I think, because the poet as well has to have external consistency. A poet writes to be understood and to be enjoyed and to give rise to ideas and emotions in the readers. And that's an external constraint. And you know, mention this point also in the book in another way, where you discuss a meeting between a physicist and a writer, a novelist, and the physicist says, no, you know, that writing a novel is, is not science. You, you cannot say that this is science. And what the writer says is, is, you know, it's not as though I have freedom. The characters have a life of their own. And, and, you know, there's some degree of freedom in setting up the characters. But once the characters are there, they have to go on their own trajectory. They have to be true to themselves. And there are constraints there as well. So I, I thought that point was very well made. However, what I want to ask you is, I think our listeners... There are listeners out there that are maybe shouting at us right now saying, but no, you can't say this. Science is not like literature. It's not like poetry. There is this fundamental difference. And so I think we do have to, we've touched upon this earlier in the hour, but we do have to be mindful of the differences. It's not as though, I think you, it's, it's absolutely not your point, I think, that you want to say there are no differences. We, we, you say we highlight the differences, but it's not as though there are no differences. So what set of differences would you still maintain are present in science? What is unique about science relative to the arts? That's a wonderful question. And so, so I think what's unique about science is that when we do science, we are recreating in image the universe that has already been created or formed. And I think that is a specific way of responding to that universe. We're recreating it in our minds in a quantitative as well as qualitative way. At We're recreating it at multiple scales. Whereas I think in art, I've collected all sorts of quotes about what art is for. As many people have written about art, as many opinions about what art is for as there are people who've ever ever, ever written about it. So let's listen to Iris Murdoch, for example. Art leads, she says, us towards a juster, clearer, more detailed, more refined understanding of human nature or of the natural world which crowds upon our senses. There are obvious differences in how these two areas of human activity work and also in the details of their goals, right? So even if poetry and science both want to contribute or aim to contribute to a better understanding of the natural world around us, then, of course, the ways in which they do that differ from each other. But I think it's very telling that you think so much about the similarities. And, and they're probably, I mean, they, they really are. I mean, you've convinced us that they really are much more significant than we usually appreciate. I think that's true. And one of the reasons is I keep trying because people are always asking me, as you have just done, and, and it happens again, you know, Tom, could you talk more about the differences? People talk about this all yeah. the time. You know, I'm writing this book because to be a kind of almost lone voice. So in your book, I think a very important role is played by another book by Graham Wallace, The Art of Thought, that he wrote in 1926, and where he introduces a four-stage structure for the creative process. And you actually expand that in your book even further. But there's one specific stage in that process, which is incubation, which seems to play a very important 
but very little understood role in creativity. And I like a quote from an anonymous physicist, I think, in your book, which says, you go through this long, hard period of filling yourself up with as much information as you can. You just sort of feel it all rumbling around inside of you. And then you begin to feel a solution, a resolution bubbling up into your consciousness, um, which describes this period of where something happens under the surface in the subconscious, maybe, but that we're not really aware of. So is there a better way of understanding that? Whether you call it non-conscious mind or the subconscious mind or the unconscious mind, I think maybe non-conscious is the most neutral. Clearly has, for everyone, an absolutely vital role to play. Um, sometimes it's personified, I and mean, this is exactly where the old idea of the muse comes from. You know, oh, resty muse, you know, whither <laughs> right. hast thou gone to Shakespeare? You know, come back, help me write a poem. And it sometimes feels like this. So when this idea wells up apparently effortlessly, the French mathematician Adamar writes about this and his wonderful you know, account of what it's like to do mathematics. And he, being a mathematician, he said, well, what is the subconscious doing? Maybe the subconscious is just working through all the possible permutations of mathematical symbols in my problem field. And then, you know, I suppose, like the um, code breaking machine and then tapping me on the shoulder and stopping me when it's got the right one. Then he he does a quick sum and he works out there are far too many, you know, combinations, hyper astronomical numbers. There's no way it's doing that. And even our subconscious, therefore, is creatively guided by what he calls shadow emotions. It's all guesswork. But there is something that I think is of interest here, which is the in the shower moment. So the, the aha moments. Now, like I say, if I had a fiver, five pounds for everyone who's told me, you know, and then I was getting off a bus when suddenly I thought, aha, I thought, and, you know, it happens a lot getting off buses and sometimes it's in the shower. <laughs> yeah. Why is that? Why? I, why okay. <laughs> so I have us. a completely amateur, we, amateur we neuroscience reason for why <laughs> okay. it's that. Bring it on. Bring so it on. here we go. Tell me what you think about it. It's Bayesian. <laughs> it's Bayesian. It's all good. So we have a part of our wonderful cortex has uh, our brains have this non-conscious engine, which is gnawing away at big problems we've given it. How am I going to find the answer to this poem or painting or theory or whatever it is, right? What's dark matter? You know, whatever it is. Simple little questions like that. And it's beavering away. But our conscious mind, most of its time is taken up in coping with our perceptual environment. So when I'm on a bus, right, I'm looking all the time, I'm hearing noises. And as we discussed before, it's not a matter of just, oh, I'm looking and that's the back of the driver's head. No, my brain knows I have a very, very complicated series of photon fluxes hitting my retina all the time from every which direction, and I've got to make sense of them. But And most of the time, it's my brain saying, I'm in a bus, I'm in a bus, on a bus. That object is, probably looks like the back of someone's head. It is on the back of someone's head. This is moving. It's green. What is it? It's a tree outside the window. Great, great. Oh, what's that noise? It sounds like a dog. Is the dog in the bus? Yes, there's a dog. So that passenger has a dog. <laughs> yeah. And I'm doing, oh, oh, flipping heck, it's so busy. No mm. wonder I can't really think. Mm. I can't really think because I'm throwing possibilities of reality at my perceptual right. stream. And when I get off the bus, I change my system one. I, I'm now outside, so I have different noises. I have the thing, oh, it's a, it's a postal box. That's what that is. What's the yellow thing or that red thing? What's this tall thing that I mustn't bump into? It's a lamppost, right? What's this other tall <laughs> thing? Oh, it's a friend. I'll stop and say hello. Okay. okay. And so it's a whole different <laughs> set. It's being on the sidewalk, on the pavement, as we say here. Now, 
but and we're just as busy and my subconscious has in the words of Isaiah the prophet you know a still small voice it's very quiet it doesn't shout it's got very tentative suggestions but there is a moment as I get off the bus when I am in neither system one bus nor system one sidewalk I'm between environments and momentarily I you know if you drive stick shift or a gear the car it's, it's a good analogy I'm in neutral I'm in cha- I'm literally changing I'm, no, I'm metaphorically changing gear I'm in neutral and I for a brief moment I've got none of this stuff going on. Mm. Hey, so amateur neuroscientist McLeish mm. says, ah, now I'm quiet enough for my little voice. Hey, I've got an idea about dark matter here. You might just want to think about, oh, and those are the moments. That's why they're the moments. Or if you're in a shower, you know, who needs to know, who needs to keep detecting what you just close your eyes and, uh, you know. Right. Yeah, you're right. Maybe I I never thought about that, but really maybe that is why a lot of people say they have ideas in the shower. It's because, there's there's no distraction. Yeah, there's no distraction. There's, there's hardly them, yeah. any sound because yeah. because the water is so loud. There's nothing to look at. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, exactly I always so. thought my pet, <laughs> pet theory. My pet theory is that you have ideas in the shower because oftentimes you take a shower in the morning. And so it's really this interface between oh. the night and day. You've been dreaming. Your subconscious mind has been hard at work on a problem, and it's finally communicating it to your conscious mind. So you think you're having an idea, but really you're just becoming aware of what another part of your brain has figured out. You, you could, yeah. You, you, well, that, I mean, that is what having an idea is. I mean, having an idea is, I'm sure, working is discuss, is listening finally to something that another part of your brain has worked out. I think it's a beautiful way of articulating what having an idea is. Yeah, um, right. Of course, yeah. some it, it, it then shifts the problem back about how does that other part of the brain get to this thing anyway. I call them liminal moments, and there are other ones you know, going on runs and actually standing in doorways. In fact, one of my other <laughs> personal moments was literally in a doorway, and this was one of those times where. And we should talk about this too, that ideas don't necessarily happen, aren't created by individual minds. They're sometimes created by pairs of minds or communities of minds or groups. Right, a super mind. Mm. Super mind, yeah, a hive mind, or the ideas can come out of, mind, right. out of communication. And sometimes my favorite ideas, you know, you're talking with a scientific friend and you're trying to solve a problem and they say, that's a good idea. And you say, <laughs> what's a good idea? And they tell you the good idea, and you say, oh, "No, that's not what I meant at all." <laughs> it turned out that, it turned out that no idea. one actually had the good idea, <laughs> but yeah. it still managed to it still managed to appear. I love that. So, when we started this conversation, one thing I quoted from your book, which Itai and I, of course, agree very much with, is that in the formal training of scientists, there is hardly any talk or no talk yeah. at all about how to be creative in the sciences. So apart from taking lots of showers and stepping off buses and standing in doorways, (laughs) is there any other recipes for enhanced creativity that you can think of? Well, yeah, of course, you've made the beautiful point that, you know, my best advice would be to scientists who want to be creative is to spend their days traveling by bus and getting on and off different buses (laughs) all the time. But of course, you have to have done the hard work first. Um, Everyone who has these experiences somehow knows 
that it has been the hard sweat and tears that, you know, you're in the lab, you're trying to line this thing, you're trying to get the data and you just can't, or you're trying to make the program work and it's just coming out with garbage, you're trying to create a theory and it's just not... Ah, not behaving in interesting ways at all. You're getting nowhere at all, and and you just it's either too complicated or too simple, and you're not getting anywhere. All that, all that, and that could take weeks or months. Or you're trying to understand something someone else has done. You can't get it. All all that. It looks like wasted time, but it's not wasted time. You have to do all that. Yeah, and I have to jump in and say that this really is a point you make in the book. That quote: "The creation of the radically new." can often disguise a hidden continuity with earlier ideas, which have themselves been transposed from one domain to another. So many ideas, the first benefit of interdisciplinarity, but also the notion that any kind of aha moment is really just a mirage. It hides away the, the hard work that led up to it, which hopefully it's not a workaholic kind of uh, inspired hard work, but, but a lot of incubation time. And I think... I have to say that uh, reading your book is inspiring in the sense that it gives a more complete picture of the the life of uh, being in academia, which for all its toil, it also is very rewarding and the flashes of inspiration and just this wild creative method. So I think it's we're so fortunate, right? What uh, you know, I've only had one job my whole life, but. It's the best job I can imagine. <laughs> well, 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 I had at least two, and I have to agree, working in science is the better of them. It's yeah, Martin amazing. has done the control. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a great place to wrap up. Yeah. This, this was such a, an illuminating conversation, and for us, such a nice way to continue to talk and think about your book. I've really enjoyed it. I should actually say, um, this is a little bit, am I allowed to um, to just press on a little um, advert oh, yeah. here? There's a revised edition coming out, which will be cheaper than paperback. So there's a paperback coming out back end of this year. And the revised edition will have, so a number of critics quite reasonably pointed out, however much they liked the book and the kind of things they said, was that for a book itself, the poetry and music of science, it really ought to have had a chapter on poetry. There really was no poetry. <laughs> no, there's no poetry <laughs> there at all. <laughs> I think that the yeah, right. The poetry but there will is the be. science. There will no, be. There oh, will so be. Added, okay, okay. In the revised edition. So what I've done is in the same sense, you know, what I do is one of the chapters I set literary prose, so fiction writing, alongside the story of experimental science, which doesn't sound like partners, but they are, and there's a whole other story there, and you can read it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of obvious when I come to poetry, I should try another part of science to explore those cousinly relations, and it turns out to be theory. So I set poetry alongside theory, or in the old words, poesis against theoria, to, to, to the Greek, and that's going to be hugely fun. Well, we really enjoyed reading the book, and uh, it's amazing, you know, how widely you read in this area. I mean, despite the fact that actually your daytime job, at least it seems to me, is working on very different problems. So it's amazing how you actually managed to research that. Well, I should say... The University of York is very kind. It's given me an interdisciplinary position. So I have three days a week in physics, but I have two days a week officially in humanities. Mm. So some of my day job time, I can afford to go to um, English seminars and music and and talk and write with human colleagues from humanities as well. So I'm, that's very, very fortunate. It's a fantastic job. So hats off to University of York. Absolutely. I think, Tom, your life is yeah. just the poster 
advertisement that we should have for what it is to have a life in the science. Be careful what you wish for is my answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't told you about all of it. (laughs) Yes. We'll leave that for Uh, another podcast. I think so. Yes, I think that's that's left. The day science part. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thanks again for joining us. 